For centuries, tobacco has been grown all over the South. You see fields of it, neat rows of the broad leaves in Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina. And while it isn't a crop you eat, food runs through the story of tobacco in this region. There'd be like three or four mix that have pork, that have chicken, that have beef, tomatoes, cucumbers, green beans, corn, beets, mashed potatoes, you know, just, just potato cakes. I mean, just all sorts. Deviled eggs. We always had deviled eggs. Um, and then like four or five desserts. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, we go to Western North Carolina, where the tobacco fields of the past have been undergoing a transformation and food traditions alongside them. What's happening to the culinary culture surrounding tobacco as the tobacco industry has changed? Jen Nathan Orris has our story. In Madison County, North Carolina, old tobacco barns rise up like skeletons. They appear out of nowhere on the winding mountain roads emerging from the hillsides. Beams of light shine through the dusty wooden slats where tobacco leaves traditionally hung in the air. Robin Reeves learned to grow tobacco from her family as a girl. They've farmed here since the 1840s. She's the sixth generation to work their land in the community of Little Sandy Mush. She jumps in their truck to drive out to their old barn. The barn stands in the distance, covered in pokeweed and poison oak. Vines weave in and out of the weathered wood. The barns that we have here, most of them were something that we hung tobacco in. And if we walk up through here, we can see the barn that's got tear poles and stuff in it. Now, Tobacco farming was the lifeblood of Madison County during the 20th century. Families relied on the winter income for clothes, cars, property taxes, and any food they didn't grow themselves. Tobacco was a mountain crop that could grow on a few acres of flat land. Farms in western North Carolina sometimes have a bit of bottomland by the road, but much of the farm is often steep hills. The farmers grew tobacco at the bottom, the most profitable, reliable crop that could grow on a couple flat acres. The whole family helped during tobacco season. As a kid, Robin helped every step of the way, from planting the tobacco seedlings in the spring to harvesting the broad golden leaves each fall and stringing them on sticks, which were hung from tear poles in the barn to cure. Robin remembers planting tobacco seedlings with her sister, riding side by side on the tobacco setter, a tractor-like vehicle she used to place young plants in the field. Like I said, I love setting tobacco. That's some of my sister and our best memories is on the tobacco setter. We we did a lot of singing on the tobacco setter. Um, Dad would think we were telling him to stop, and we'd just be singing away. And I go, oh, no, go on, go on. Um, he's like, quit singing so loud. They sang Country Roads by John Denver, some Willie Nelson tunes, and all their favorite Bible school songs. Country roads, take me home. We were always in the field. My daddy's philosophy is we work together and we play together. So there was not a part of it that, that we didn't do. Those tidy rows of tobacco are long gone, replaced by cattle and tall grasses. Like a lot of her neighbors, Robin doesn't grow the crop anymore. The tobacco industry has changed dramatically over the past 20 years. We'll talk about why later. But those changes made it hard for small farms to turn a profit. 
These days, wind whistles through the empty barren barns now that tobacco is fading away in western North Carolina. The loss of tobacco wasn't just a loss of income, it was also a loss of culture. So many aspects of life in this part of the southern Appalachians were built around growing tobacco, including food. Mark Sorrells grew up in Jonathan Creek in Haywood County and farmed tobacco with his family as a kid. He still thinks about the crop pretty much every day now that he works for the Golden Leaf Foundation, a nonprofit that helps communities across North Carolina transition from tobacco to other industries. He says the tobacco season meant that everyone pitched in. It was not just you or your uh, employees, it was your family and extended families that were helping. So, it, you know, I can think about in my community how families were helping other families. It was one of those things that built some fiber and fabric uh, in the community that was very important. Farmer Buster Norton remembers people coming together during tobacco season. Family, friends, and neighbors. They grew tobacco too. Everybody grew tobacco then. At nearly all these fields up and down Grapevine, nearly all of them had tobacco in them. Well, one neighbor would go, they'd cut that today, they'd cut it, and it would be curing down. Well, they'd cut two or three days, and all of them would go put that field up, and all of them would go put the other field up. And they all just worked together every day till the tobacco all got hung. And they looked like a chain gang. <laughs> That's what they called them. And all those people needed to be fed, including the high school kids Robin's family hired to help. As many as 10 boys from the neighborhood worked all summer. The boys earned a steady income and learned farming skills. Her parents got dependable labor, and she got an extended family. You know, they were always around, so they were like brothers. Um, and, and that's what I still consider them, you know, to be. I mean, they were my brothers growing up, and they still are, you know. During tobacco season, Robin and her mother farmed alongside the boys in the mornings and then they'd go inside to fix up a small meal. In addition to tobacco and tomatoes, Robin's family also grew a small amount of corn just to feed their livestock. They'd chop it into pieces and put it into a silo to ferment. It was hard work that required a much heartier feast. Well, if, the, if the, they started siloing one day, they'd be cooking all that day, and then they would cook up until lunchtime. And I mean, it would be, it would be every corner of the table counter, and I mean, the table that we we had is a huge table and I mean it would all be full you know of anything you could think about to eat <laughs> um, but there'd be like three or four meats that have pork that have chicken that have beef tomatoes cucumbers green beans corn beets mashed potatoes you know just just potato cakes I mean just all sorts of deviled eggs we always had deviled eggs um, and then like four or five desserts for generations, families in the Southern Appalachians raised their own meat and grew their own produce. Around the same time they harvested tobacco, they also put up food for the winter, curing meat and pickling fall vegetables. Growing your own food was often a necessity, but it was also a point of pride and a chance for the community to come together. I can remember um, slaughtering hogs um, in the fall and uh, in, in winter about the time tobacco was being harvested and brought into the barns and uh, our job is uh, when they would slaughter the hogs was to uh, once they would put them in a big 55 gallon barrel of hot water was to scrape the hair off the hides and uh, when they would um, uh, take the insides out to run the liver uh, to my grandmother so she could make liver mush. Mark says food traditions aren't being handed down the same way now. Those things you don't have it anymore and a lot of times our kids today 
they think food comes from a grocery store. Many kids don't know where tobacco comes from either. And in some ways, it's because of the federal government's long and curious history with the crop. It goes back to the New Deal. Here's a little history for you. The Great Depression hit tobacco farmers hard, and the government stepped in to help. In 1938, the market was flooded with excess tobacco. The tobacco companies wouldn't buy it all, so Congress established a quota system that limited the acreage and the number of pounds a tobacco farm could produce. Tobacco companies also had to let farmers know at the beginning of the season how much they'd purchase that year. So farmers found out in February how much the companies would buy from them, instead of waiting until November when the crop was already grown and harvested. Mark says this made a big difference for small tobacco farmers. It was a predictable income stream that um, they knew that they could grow the crop and they could take and they could count on a certain amount of money within a range that was going to be available to them uh, during those, those winter months. But over the next 60 years, researchers learned about the health effects of tobacco use. The Surgeon General warns that tobacco causes emphysema, heart disease, and lung cancer. There's no denying that tobacco use can cause serious health problems and even death. In 2004, Congress got the federal government out of the tobacco industry. The Fair and Equitable Tobacco Act, better known as the Tobacco Buyout, ended the quotas. Farmers got some help to make the transition. Quota holders and tobacco growers were compensated over the next 10 years based on how many pounds they'd produced in the past. That money came from tobacco companies, not taxpayers. But in 2014, those buyout payments ended. So now it's truly a, a market uh, rate system where uh, you grow it and you take it to market with the chance you may be able to sell it and you may not. The local USDA Farm Service Agency tracked the number of tobacco farms before and during the buyout. There were over 2,000 farms growing tobacco in Madison County during the 1970s. A few decades later, there were just 613. Many farmers retired. Others dropped tobacco and increased their livestock herds, seeking a more predictable income. Families had to decide how they would get by without it. But Buster Norton isn't ready to let go just yet. Today, Buster is topping the tobacco in his eight-acre field in Grapevine, North Carolina, using his hands to snap off the pink flowers that crown the plant. It's beginning to bloom, but it will grow as high as uh, seven foot, and we top it. I usually take out five or six leaves. We call it bud topping. Buster has a contract with the tobacco company R.J. Reynolds, so if weather cooperates, he can predict about how much he'll get paid at the end of the year. But for a lot of families who relied on quotas, growing tobacco just isn't part of their lives anymore. Neighbors don't go from field to field. They don't help each other during harvest season. It's, it's kind of a dying culture because we just, we're just not connected like we did was. Coming up, how tobacco farmers are turning to food after the end of the quotas and how they're dealing with that cultural loss, too. There is that donor music. So around the Southern Foodways Alliance World Headquarters, we're busy planning our Thanksgiving menus. At the center of the table, there will be turkey, roasted to perfection, brown as a chestnut. Our secret to roasting the best bird? We use Lodge's enameled cast iron Dutch oven, without the lid. 
the sides of the Dutch oven retain heat to aid in browning. The bird stays beautifully moist on the inside. And you want to serve rolls for dinner, right? Check out Lodge's website for a family spoon roll recipe baked in, what else? A Lodge cast iron mini cake pan. With a little help from Lodge, you can host the perfect feast. And you're able to enjoy this podcast. For that, we are thankful. And now, back to Jen Nathan Orris. Tobacco season once brought neighbors together, and in some ways, its loss has pulled people apart. The end of the tobacco quotas caused a chain reaction in western North Carolina that forced people to find new ways to make a living and created divisions between folks who kept farming and those who had to get other jobs. A few old-timers stop by when Buster Norton is out in his tobacco fields, but not as often as they did when he was younger. Now, a lot of people commute to jobs in the city. There aren't many places to work in Madison County, and wages are higher in Asheville, about 45 minutes away. When neighbors go to work in the morning, they don't see neighbors all day, like we do in the farming operations. See, I see everything that's going on in the community, being farming, because I'm out in the community working every day. I go up and down the road four or five times a day, so I see what's going on. My neighbors see what's going on, but they, they, they're not here except in the evening. So they can't help me. By the time they leave home at 6 o'clock in the morning, they don't get back till 5.30, 6 o'clock that day, afternoon. So they can't be involved. And those teenage boys that grew tobacco on Robin's family farm? They can't be involved either. R.J. Reynolds prohibits farmers from hiring children 16 and under. Heavy equipment and exposure to chemicals can be dangerous, and nicotine poisoning can be especially hazardous in large fields. This is less of a danger in the smaller fields of western North Carolina because there's more air circulation, but rules are rules. Neighborhood kids can't have those jobs anymore, and that changes how farming traditions are passed down. Robin's son is studying creative writing at a college about 45 minutes away and rarely comes back to help out. She doesn't think there'll be a seventh generation on her farm. I doubt my son will ever come back to the farm. You know, I mean, it, and, and he says, you know, if I'm really financially secure, I might just because of the romantic idea of farming, you know. But as far as coming back to truly be a farmer, I don't see that happening. I don't see my niece and nephew ever doing that. And I don't see me chasing cows at 75. But Robin didn't think she'd come back to the farm when she was that age either. I mean, if you had looked at me and told me when I was, even up into high school, that I was going to be ever back on the farm, I'd have looked at you and told you it was crazier than a shot cat. She thought she'd be a missionary in Bolivia. Instead, she worked at a computer help desk at the hospital in Asheville for 10 years. She also ran a restaurant and a convenience store. In the end, she came back to the farm, partly to help her aging mother, and also to keep her family's farming traditions alive. Robin feels the loss of tobacco when she drives through the hills of Madison County. But there is nothing prettier to me than golden tobacco hanging in a barn or hand-tied tobacco. So there's a lot of, a lot of things there that, that we were proud of and, and that we had that pride in. And now as farmers in this area, it feels like we, we don't have that direction. I mean, quilting's an art, you know, moonshine making's an art. Being able to cut tobacco and string it and hang it's an art. It's those things that, that you miss and that you just truly miss, you know. And what people eat is shifting, too. Robin lives with her mother in their original farmhouse. Their dinner table looks pretty different these days. A lot of our mothers, you know, 
they they don't cook. And I mean, even my mother now, because she don't eat but a handful of whatever now, and you know, she she's not cooking like she was cooking. I mean, when you've got 10 boys at the house to feed, plus the family, you know, you cook. But you know, now we don't cook. Farm life is not completely disappearing alongside tobacco. Some farmers are finding new opportunities if they're willing to take risks, especially with food. Robin has been searching for a crop to replace tobacco for years. She partnered with a local distillery to grow pigs fed on their whiskey mash. That didn't work out. They were very, very slow growing. Really good meat. Now, don't get me wrong, meat was really good. But you, you were putting way too much food energy into them to get what you were getting. I mean, the, the pigs would have been $1,000 pigs. Right now, she's using her tobacco skills to try something new, growing hydroponic watercress in a greenhouse. It's the same technique her dad used to start tobacco seedlings when Robin was a kid. And that's actually what gave me the idea of how to grow the watercress the way that I'm growing it, is because of using the knowledge that I had from growing tobacco plants in a float bed. It's too soon to tell if the watercress will work out. While a major supermarket chain has shown interest, there's no deal yet. Asheville has a thriving restaurant scene, and new organic farms grow produce for chefs, including specialty crops like microgreens and unusual varieties of garlic. Many of these young farmers moved here from other parts of the country, and Robin is trying to keep up with the trends. This is Vertigrow right here. It is our vertical system. This year, she's growing purslane in her greenhouse. She doesn't grow this specialty herb in soil, but in vertical towers filled with crushed coconut shells. Maybe the shells will hold in more moisture, making the purslane tastier and more attractive to chefs in Asheville. Or maybe it won't. It wouldn't be the first time Robin had to change gears and try something new. Growing new crops, finding new markets, trying things Robin's grandparents could never have imagined. Is this the future for farming families in rural North Carolina? Robin wants to combine old traditions with new ideas. Seems like you experiment a lot. I do. <laughs> and it's not only for me that I experiment. I, I want to find stuff for other growers who um, have transitioned out of the back and can't find their niche too. It's um, one of those things that, that is, is a passion of mine that is trying to help other farmers figure out a way to make a living farming too. Many families aren't farming much these days. Flat land is hard to come by and even harder to afford as real estate prices get higher. In this rugged mountain landscape where flat land is at a premium, there really isn't a large-scale crop that could replace tobacco. I don't see one coming in. In this community, there's not enough land for big crops like corn. Buster is getting older, with a white beard that curls down to his shirt collar. He drives the county school bus part-time and his wife works at the middle school. He says he does turn a profit from his contract with R.J. Reynolds, but in 15 years, he likely won't be growing tobacco either. I probably won't be. <laughs> Don't plan on it anyway. Mark Sorrells from the Golden Leaf Foundation has seen a lot of family farms die off in his part of Haywood County. Uh, the old timers, many have kind of gone out of farming. Uh, and as one farmer said, if I can't grow tobacco, I'll grow trailers. And they ended up putting trailer parks in and, and leasing it for um, living space, residential space. Although some community traditions during tobacco season have faded away, others are being preserved instead. It's 7.30 on a misty October morning. 
Buster sits in front of an antique mill, feeding its sorghum cane. Sorghum is a grain crop that looks a lot like corn and boils down to a dark brown syrup. It's used in place of honey or sugar in desserts and adds a sweet grassy flavor to just about anything you pour it on. It takes all day to turn sorghum cane into syrup. A workhorse named Tim is already harnessed up. Okay, Tim. Time to work again. <laughs> Time to work. Let's go. He trots in a tight circle to power the mill that squeezes the juice from the cane. Tobacco leaves hang from tears in the nearby barn, crinkled from about a month of curing. Now that Buster and his neighbors don't work together in the fields as often, this sorghum boil is a way that they connect during harvest season. A lot of people around here call boiling sorghum making molasses, although molasses is made with sugar cane, not sorghum cane. But when you're with the Norton family, you call it molasses, just like they do. They sell jars for $10, but you can't find them in any store. You have to come by the Norton farm and learn a little bit about making molasses while you're there. Buster's wife, Jesse and his daughter, Kendra, are in the tobacco barn stripping sorghum cane. They take off the dried leaves so only the juicy stalk remains. The bright green sorghum juice Buster just squeezed from the cane needs to get from the mill to a massive metal trough where it'll boil for about five hours. Kendra loads a barrel of sorghum juice on the tractor. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're ready. The family crowds around as the sorghum juice rushes into the trough. Buster loads pieces of wood into a cinder block chamber underneath the trough and steps back. They made molasses yesterday, and those coals are warm enough to ignite the flame. Now all that's left to do is wait. Neighbors come and go, sitting down to catch up on gossip and tell stories. Did you get all that strip? Got all that strip? A preacher cracks jokes about chickens and old cars. Buster teaches an 11-year-old boy how to skim the foam that floats on top of the sorghum juice, just like he learned from neighbors who have since passed on. As Buster and his neighbors watch the molasses boil, his mother drives up to the sorghum shack. The family rushes over to help her carry about a dozen dishes from the car. Chicken and dumplings, cornbread, mashed potatoes, green beans, and sweet tea in an old milk jug. The star of the meal is a four-layer old-timey fruitcake made with apples she dried herself. They set a plank of wood on two sawhorses and place flowered tablecloths on top. The preacher from a nearby church leads the group in prayer. All right, we're going to say the blessing. This is a big crowd. Well, we appreciate this day the Lord blessed us with and thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you're going to do. Bless the food that's been prepared for the nourishment of our bodies. In your name we pray, amen. Tomorrow, Buster's pantry will be stocked with molasses. His mother will fix chicken and dumplings as long as she's able, and Buster says he'll keep making molasses each year. In a couple months, he'll take his tobacco to the R.J. Reynolds receiving station in Tennessee. He'll go home with enough money to make it through the winter and to pay for the seed and fertilizer he'll need next year. Buster and Robin are hanging on to farming traditions as best they can and creating new ones when they need to. It goes beyond those golden leaves hanging in the barn, to the strength and determination of their families. Farmers have found a way to get by for generations. They'll figure out what's next together, whether or not there's fruitcake on their table 
or tobacco in their fields. Jen Nathan Orris is a radio producer and writer based in Asheville, North Carolina. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions, Dr. Turtle, Nathan Hobbs, David Sheshtai, and Computer vs. Banjo for Diagram Collective. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... As we approach the year's end, the Southern Foodways Alliance is in the middle of our annual membership drive. If you're not a member, consider joining. If your membership expires in December, consider renewing. And if you have a hard-to-buy-for friend, memberships also make great holiday gifts. SFA members receive a subscription to the Gravy Print Journal, as well as a membership sticker and a card with members-only specials and discounts. Most importantly, members have the satisfaction that their dollars support this organization's good work. Oral histories, films, and publishing projects, just to name a few. Memberships may be purchased online at southernfoodways.org, where there is never a line the day after Thanksgiving. Your membership also supports this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, the city that gave birth to Coca-Cola. I grew up, as I often say, I call it Coke country because that's what it is. You're surrounded uh, by Coke in Atlanta, Georgia. It was almost just kind of in the water, so to speak, right? We had it at our house. I mean, I drank so much Coke growing up. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, probably more Coke than water. How is Coke shaped Atlanta? And how did coming from Atlanta shape Coke? That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Thank you.